0: Hello and welcome to the June edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast. My apologies that this podcast is being released a little later than normal, but we've been heavily involved in a project with water companies over the last six months, which has taken quite a considerable amount of my time, and of which you will hear more next month. So, moving on, let's start off with news. In advance of the newly launched Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, TNFD. They love their acronyms. The BSI has launched its new BS 8632 standard, which is designed to help organisations integrate their financial accounting with their impact on nature. Essentially, it outlines how users can place value on nature and translate this into balance sheets and income statements, something which is known as natural capital approach. Natural resources covered by the standard include forests, fisheries, rivers, oceans, soils, minerals, the atmosphere and biodiversity supported by all of these habitats. Crucially, it enables the accounting of both positive and detrimental impacts to nature and can be applied to operations in any geography. The hope is that businesses and other organisations will be able to use the balance sheets to inform decision making, i.e. a financial value can be assigned to nature and risks relating to nature degradation and this ensures that they will be able to contribute to national nature goals and the International UN Sustainable Development Goals. The BSI stated that balance sheets should be regularly updated to help users of the standard track changes over time and communicate the information and its implications internally and externally. Aside from businesses, the standard could be used by public sector bodies, charities, investors, auditors and those responsible for assurance, certification and regulation. According to the World Economic Forum, $44 trillion, more than half global GDP, is exposed to risk from nature loss. Similar research from the WWF found that nature loss will cause the global economy at least eight trillion pounds by 2050 without tr- transformational action as it described it from the public and private sector alongside governments businesses and nations are under increasing pressure to measure and reduce their negative impacts on nature ahead of the 15th biodiversity cop and 26th climate cop the recent deskupta review on the economics of biodiversity comm- commissioned by the uk government argues that natural capital approach must be embedded into economic decision-making globally to give humanity the best possible chance of avoiding large-scale risk in the future. The convener of BSI's assessing and value nature capital expert said, there is increasing awareness that maintaining natural capital is a business sustainability issue, yet many investors still believe that nature is too complex to invest in. By setting out the framework and documentation requirements for natural capital accounting, the new standard will make such investments much easier. Next, an article in ED uh, E-D-I-E, newsroom caught my eye, and it was businesses calling on the UK government to deliver world-leading hydrogen sector. It was published on the 17th of June 2021, and it states that businesses do not believe that the government is being ambitious enough in efforts to create a world-leading hydrogen market. With the commitment to 5 gigawatts of green and blue hydrogen by 2030 failing to generate confidence within the private sector under the government's 10-point plan the uk will aim to generate 5 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen capacity by 2030 up to 500 million will be invested in a bid to create a hydrogen neighborhood in 2023 a hydrogen village by 2025, and to create the first town running entirely on hydrogen. However, the Hydrogen Strategy, now cross-industry group, has called for the government to raise efforts to unlock greater green hydrogen capacity. The group consists of more than 120 businesses that employ more than 100,000 people in the UK, with a combined net worth of £150 billion. A survey of group members found that more than 75% do not believe that the government's 5 gigawatt aim is ambitious enough. In addition, 81% of respondents felt that the UK was failing to meet its potential regarding the technology. UK Hydrogen's chair, Chris Jackson, said, The UK has all the ingredients to be a world-leading hydrogen economy, creating jobs, economic growth and accelerating the transition to net zero. Sadly, the results of this survey show that the government needs to go further and faster in its development of an appropriately ambitious hydrogen policy framework to support industry and unlock the UK's potential. A clear takeaway from the survey is that the government could create greater confidence and interest in the UK market by significantly increasing its hydrogen production targets, both of 2025 and 2030. If the government's ambition is to create a world-leading hydrogen market, then having world-leading targets is key, as is detailed in the policy that shows close coordination between different government departments. The report goes on to say, Earlier this year, the Nuclear Industry Council, the NIC, and Nuclear Industry Association, NIA, published a roadmap outlining how the UK could co-locate electrolysis at 12 to 13 gigawatts of nuclear reactors. This commitment could enable the production of 75 terawatt hours of green hydrogen by 2050, the body claims. The groups are calling for more R&D funding higher carbon price and new financing models to help bring the cost of green hydrogen down to parity with fossil-based hydrogen, which currently represents more than 95% of global annual production. MPs on the Environmental Audit Committee, the EAC, highlighted the need for the hydrogen strategy through their latest briefing on green recovery. The briefing states that many in the private sector do not feel that the UK's green hydrogen sector is investable yet as the 10-point plan only provides limited and short-term support. Additionally, the Hydrogen Task Force, set up in March of 2020, led by Shell and BP, and is lobbying for the UK government to invest £1 billion to boost hydrogen production in the UK, the task force believes that the UK can be home to the world-leading hydrogen economy by investing £1 billion in hydrogen production distribution and storage projects that could be used for transport and heating and blend into gas grid. The task force called for amendments to be made that would enable the hydrogen to be blended into the UK gas grids and for the UK government to support trials for hydrogen ready boilers and hydrogen refuelling stations for road transport by 2025. The task force published research finding that utilisation and development of hydrogen technology could generate £18 billion pounds to the UK economy and support more than 75,000 jobs over the next 15 years. The next item that caught my eye was also in EDI or the EDI Newsroom and it relates to the UK National Infrastructure Bank which we have mentioned previously but this is an article that highlights that the National Infrastructure Bank, the NIB has now launched as of the 17th of June with Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, promising that it will funnel billions of pounds into UK's net zero transition. The NIB was first announced by Sunak in 2020 in a spending review. It is designed to support major infrastructure projects replacing the role of the European Investment Bank with the funding designed to assist the delivery of the National Infrastructure Strategy. That strategy was updated in November of 2020 with the UK's 2050 net zero target and impact of COVID-19 on the economy in mind. It will have a £22 billion financial capacity, £10 billion of government guarantees, £5 billion of equity and £7 billion of debt. It has a target to help unlock at least £40 billion of investment from the private sector. Green groups have repeatedly been asking for more information on how exactly the NIB will support the UK's net zero transition and be prevented from supporting projects that are not aligned with this long-term legally binding climate commitment. Speaking at the opening of the NIB, Rishi Sunak said it will accelerate the UK's ambition for tackling climate change and levelling up while creating new opportunities across the UK as part of our plan for jobs. Climate change is mentioned several times in the NIB's framework document. This document states that the NIB's core mission is to partner with the private sector and local government to increase infrastructure investment to help to tackle climate change and promote economic growth across the regions. Climate change is also mentioned in the Strategic objectives and operating principles, but in the latter there is little additional detail on which projects will and will not be eligible for funding on climate grounds. The EIB is notably in the process of ending fossil fuel finance. More detail will be likely to be released once the bank is out of its interim stage. The Aldersgate Group's Executive Director, Nick Molhoe, said the NIB launch is a strongly welcomed intervention at a time where the UK economy needs to recover from the disruption brought about by the pandemic and put itself on track for net zero emissions. He went on to say that the bank has a key role to play in crowding in much needed private investment towards crucial and complex Low-carbon projects and industries, which can drive innovation, supply chain growth, and job creation across the country. However, the Climate Change Committee (CCC) highlighted that the UK is poorly prepared to deal with the impacts from climate change. It is essentially that the bank also has climate adaptation and nature restoration as a key part of its mandate. It is also key that the bank be set up as an enduring institution with the flexibility to tackle different market failures over time as market conditions evolve and with a gradual increase to its capitalization to ensure that it has the right financial firepower to carry out its mission effectively and tackle the significant market barriers ahead. Molho referred to the CCC's third risk assessment on climate change for the UK, published on Wednesday the 16th of June, the report warns that climate change events in the UK are increasing in number and magnitude more rapidly than expected, with billions of pounds worth of infrastructure at risk in the coming decades. A certain degree of risk is already baked in, meaning that even if the UK meets its long-term climate targets, weather patterns will continue to change over the coming decades. And now we move on to a feature. Quite often we've had two in the past. But I'm looking at one issue which has come up in the news and with various tweets as we are looking at electric vehicles. And the focus of this part of the podcast is to just raise awareness that every action ends up with a consequence. And the consequence for electric vehicles was highlighted to me in a UN article. The article was from 2020, but it highlighted that electric cars are rapidly becoming more popular amongst consumers. And the prediction is that some 23 million will be sold over the coming decade. The market for rechargeable car batteries, currently estimated at 7 billion, is forecast to rise to 58 billion dollars by 2024. And that the shift to electric mobility is in line with the ongoing efforts to reduce the world's dependence on fossil fuels and reduce harmful Greenhouse gas emissions responsible for climate change. But a new report warns that the raw materials used for electric car batteries are highly concentrated in a small number of countries, which does raise some concerns. And the report provides some examples. The first is that two-thirds of all cobalt production happens in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. About 20% of cobalt supplied from the DRC comes from artisanal mines where human rights abuses have been reported and up to 40,000 children work in extremely dangerous conditions in the mines for a meagre income. It also highlights that Chile is a major location for lithium and lithium mining uses nearly 65 percent of the water in the country's Saladar de Atacama region, one of the driest deserts in the world, to pump out brines from drilled wells. This has forced local farmers and llama herders to migrate and abandon ancestral settlements. It has also contributed to environmental degradation, with landscapes damaged and soil contaminated, groundwater depleted, and pollution. Noting that the rise in demand for these strategic raw materials used to manufacture electric car batteries will open more trade opportunities for the country uh, that supply the materials, the UNCTAD's Director of International Trade Pamela Coke Hamilton emphasised the importance for these countries to develop their capacity to move up their value chain. In the DRC, this would mean building. Processing plants and refineries that would add value and potentially jobs within the country. However, for various reasons, including limited infrastructure, finance, lack of appropriate policies, refining takes place in other countries, mainly in Belgium, China, Finland, Norway, and Zambia, which reap the major economic benefits. The report recommends that countries such as the DRC provide conducive environments to attract investment to establish new mines or expanding existing ones. There is also a recommendation that the industry finds a way to reduce its dependence on critical raw materials. For example, scientists are researching the possibility of using widely available silicon instead of graphite. 80% of natural graphite reserves are in China, Brazil and Turkey. If the industry manages to become less dependent on materials concentrated in a small number of countries, then there is more chance that Prices of batteries will drop, leading to greater take-up of electric cars and a shift away from fossil fuels. But it states that, as for the environmental consequences, the report recommends the development of improved, more sustainable mining techniques and the recycling of raw materials used in spent lithium-ion batteries, a measure that would help reduce the expected increase in demand and create new business opportunities. As many of you that have followed the podcast will know, I do have a focus on water. Uh, I have seen that water is a critical issue to our survival on this planet. And it's also a concern to me that the indicated figures for the brine that they're using, the amount of water used to create lithium or to mine the lithium, is indicated at something in the region of 2 million litres per tonne of lithium. And the problem that we have is that the water that's used when it comes back out, can be reused multiple times, but it reaches a point where it is no longer usable when it has uh, the turbidity. There are too many particulates within the water for it to provide the lubrication and to, to be used to actually draw out the lithium. And you then end up with water which is a contaminated cocktail of sludge, which is not usable and should be treated, but very often isn't. So if we have to look at... The trade-off of providing lithium or maintaining water, which is in scarce supply, then I think I know which way I'd head. And moving on from the issues around the creation of the batteries that we are going to need for electric vehicles. So the next question I ask is where is the energy coming from? And I looked at a website called the Carbon Brief. They suggest that electric vehicles could grow more than twice as fast over the next 10 years as expected just a year ago, potentially posing major challenges for the UK's electricity grid. The national grid's latest future energy scenarios provided a range of possible futures, partly in order to flag up those challenges, so that it can be planned and avoided. One of the scenarios investigated is where 100% of cars go electric, but smart charging and shared autonomous vehicles help manage the impact on the grid, peak demand that could be limited to around six gigawatts by 2050. This is equivalent to 10% of the current 60 gigawatt peak demand on a cold winter's day. Yet media reports and several headline writers present a more extreme scenario in which no efforts are made to manage the impact of electric vehicles on the electric grid as a worst case scenario. The report goes on to headline misleading information. And it says that there's a growing excitement about the potential for electric vehicles to take off far more quickly than expected. For example, Volvo has recently announced plans for all its vehicles to have electric engines by the early 2020s. So it is difficult to make assessments of precisely where we will be with electric vehicles in terms of numbers and the capacity that's going to be required for by the National Grid. Historic estimates have suggested that uh, 1 million electric vehicles could be in circulation by 2019 an estimate that was made in 2015 with 2 million by 2021 and up to 35 million by 2050. The counter argument of course is that there is a possibility of using the electric vehicles on your drive as a, a storage of renewable energy that you can actually charge and discharge the battery so you could use your car battery to power your house for periods of time, and that we effectively have a distributed network of battery storage to accommodate the increasing amount of renewable energy capacity that we now have within the system. And that this battery storage capacity would help smooth out the peaks and troughs of renewable energy. Cloudy days or night, no wind during high pressures during the winter, where you may not get the uh, generation of wind turbines. So the biggest concern that I have here is that we do need to look at solutions in the round and a solution that is going to help Western developed nations to reduce their air quality issues and to achieve a net zero target through the use of electric vehicles at the cost of significant environmental impact in other parts of the world, or if we face the fact that actually the solution of electric vehicles is not something that could be run out globally. So when it comes to electric vehicles how do we define what is sustainable? It can be argued that electric vehicles certainly do reduce emissions in our towns and cities. Whether they're net zero depends on where the energy comes from to recharge them. Looking at the broader impacts of the development of electric vehicles, what are the impacts on the environment overseas where Many of the heavy metals required for the battery manufacturer will be produced. What are the social impacts from the mining? And if you've got an electric vehicle, can you truly have a clear conscience? Does it have broader environmental impact? And this is something I have to address every time I'm discussing any potential solution with a client. You have to look at the whole impacts of the decisions that you take. And if we can take a step back a few years to the lighting market for buildings. We went through a step change when we moved away from incandescent light bulbs which were very energy inefficient, they produced a huge amount of heat, and we had a half step to compact fluorescent tubes which had lots of heavy metals. I I seem to remember that mercury was one of the the major heavy metals used in their manufacture which is difficult to manufacture, difficult to dispose of, and they only provided about half the energy savings from an incandescent but we then moved on very rapidly having had government schemes promoting compact fluorescent tubes as the new energy efficient light bulb we moved to LEDs and the concern I have is are we looking at electric vehicles as being the compact fluorescent moment and are we waiting for hydrogen to be the the LED moment as far as our vehicle transport heating and energy provision something to have a think about. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the June edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it, found it interesting. Again, if there's anything that you would like me to cover specifically about your area of operation or government policy, please do let me know. Uh, Best email address to get hold of me is thanson at esinternational.co.uk. And just to give you a, a little advance notice, the July... 2021 edition is going to be focusing on the water use and resilience project that we've been running with the water companies and the Environment Agency over the last six months with the leisure sector. So that brings us to an end. Thank you for listening and please remember to subscribe.